You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of October 12th, 2023. My name is Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Belmar goes to the dogs for Barktoberfest. The Jeffco transcript. Ralston Road widening project delayed. Completion now slated for spring. By Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press. Arvada Resiliency Task Force launches program for businesses dealing with impacts of crime. Resources, grants, part of curriculum aimed to help small business owners. By Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press. Native American performers share their stories, cultures at Golden Museum's Autumn Fest. By Corinne Westman for the Golden Transcript and following up with various articles. Belmar goes to the dogs for Barktoberfest. Costumed pups take over Belmar for the first annual Barktoberfest. The canine-themed event brought vendors and activities for the dogs. By Joe Davis. Belmar went to the dogs for a day with the first annual Barktoberfest. The October 1st event featured vendors, costumed pets of all ages and varieties, and special guests, including Bernie, the Colorado Avalanche mascot. A variety of vendors set up at the event, including Sam and Bentley's Frozen Treats for Dogs. Samantha Murphy of Littleton was there with her dog, Bentley. She offered an all-natural, gluten-free ice cream that was safe for the pups who couldn't do the Starbucks puppy cup. Her froyo was inspired by Bentley's sensitive stomach, Murphy said. Foothills Animal Shelter was also there with games for the pets. Bernie was around for a few hours to take pictures with the pups and adults. The plaza between Upham Street and Teller Street in the Belmar Shopping District was decorated with all the trappings of fall. There were photo spaces comprised of hay bales and pumpkins, food trucks present to feed the humans and pups, including the croc spot and barbed wire reef, and a dog-friendly hayride were also part of the experience. The next activities at Belmar are the Street Art Showcase from noon to 4 p.m. on October 14th and Boomar from noon to 3 p.m. on October 28th. For more, event, for more information, go to events tab at belmarcolorado.com. What's happening in Jefferson County? Locals get state appointments, together Jeffco kickoff, and more by Joe Davis. Area residents appointed to state boards and commissions by Governor Polis. Governor Jared Polis recently filled some board and commission seats with Jefferson County residents. 
Rebecca Mitchell of Littleton was appointed Director of Compact Negotiations for the Colorado Water for the 21st Century Act. Mitchell's job, according to the announcement, includes facilitating the talks and negotiations, quote, within and between basins on water management and encouraging collaborations with the community to find solutions to water supply issues. Mitchell's term expires, quote, at the pleasure of the governor, the announcement said. Adam Fox, also of Littleton, was appointed to the Health Benefits Exchange Board. The board oversees the marketplace for health insurance. According to the governor's announcement, Fox was appointed as the expert in health care services. Fox will also serve, quote, as a representative of health care consumer navigation or assistance, the announcement said. Brent Larson of Arvada was appointed to the State Electrical Board. The board oversees the license and exams for electricians. Join the kickoff of Together Jeffco at three upcoming open house events. The Together Jeffco plans and regulations update is ready to be unveiled to the public. Join county officials at a series of open house events October 10th through 16th to learn more about the update. Quote, Together Jeffco is a two-year process which combines efforts to update the comprehensive plan, transportation and mobility plan, community wildfire protection plan, comprehensive emergency management plan, evacuation annex, and the unified land use code, the announcement said. Learn more at the following open house events. Tuesday, October 10th, 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. Storyline Church. Thursday, October 12th, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m., Heritage United Methodist Church. Monday, October 16th, 1 to 3 p.m., Betcher Mansion, 900 Colorado Road, Golden. Bring the kids. Spanish interpreters will be present. Accommodations can be made for people with disabilities by emailing planning and zoning three days prior to each event. PZ is in zebra, reg, rev at jeffco.us. Again, P-Z-R-E-G-R-E-V at jeffco.us. For more information, check out togetherjeffco.com. Other happenings around the county. CSU Extension needs candy. Colorado State University Extension needs candy for its upcoming annual Fall Family Fun Day at the Jefferson County Fairgrounds. You can donate candy at the Fairgrounds CSU Extension office lobby from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Tuesday through Friday until October 18th. Check out the Jeffco Fairgrounds Instagram account for more information. Mark your calendar for fall events in Wheat Ridge. Local Works in the city of Wheat Ridge announced fall events. These include Local Works in Panorama Park Sustainable Neighborhood Block Party from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. on October 14th. Live Local Cruiser Ride with Wheat Ridge Theater Company from 5.30 p.m. to 6.45 p.m. on October 20th. The Wheat Ridge Active Transportation Advisory Team, ATAT, is hosting a candidate forum on October 26th. 
The city of Wheat Ridge is hosting this year's Trunk or Treat on October 29th. For more information, for more information visit the Local Works community calendar at wearelocalworks.org slash events. And the Jefferson County Sheriff's Office Women of Law Enforcement Summit is 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. on October 26th at the Sheriff's Office, 200 Jefferson County Parkway, Golden. Come learn about the women behind the badges and also the civilians who also work in the Sheriff's Office. It's a great opportunity to also learn about the various career options available to the women in county law enforcement. For more information, follow the JCSO Instagram page. Arvada Resiliency Task Force launches program for businesses dealing with impacts of crime. Resources, grants, part of curriculum aimed to help small business owners by Riley Dunn. As discussions about crime and homelessness have permeated throughout Arvada, the city's Resiliency Task Force launched a crime and safety program to help connect small business owners with resources, community organizations, and grants that aim to address these issues. The program was formed in response to a Q2 survey the Arvada Resiliency Task Force completed, wherein a quarter of business owners related homelessness and crime as the top issue facing their company. Arvada's Resiliency Task Force, a collaboration between the Chamber of Commerce, City of Arvada, Old Town BID, and other community organizations, held the first meeting of its crime and safety program on September 29th. The first meeting primarily featured members of the task force walking through Old Town and two other commercial areas to distribute resources and hear from business owners. Arvada Chamber of Commerce CEO Cami Welch said the effects of crime can extend beyond financial impacts. Quote, Crime can have a significant impact on businesses, from financial losses to damage to their reputation and employee morale, Welch said. But the safety and security of Arvada's businesses is also critical to the overall well-being of our community. Crime can lead to a decline in the community's economic growth and quality of life. It is essential for communities to focus on decreasing crime on and in businesses, not only to protect their financial interests, but also to ensure a safe and thriving community, Welch continued. Alec Tyrell, the owner-manager of the Grandview Tavern, said his biggest concern was employees feeling safe while getting to and from work. My biggest concern is making sure my employees are safe walking to their cars late at night, and additional lighting outside will make everyone feel more comfortable, Tyrell said. The program includes a safety toolkit, a membership in a neighborhood watch, WhatsApp group, webinars, and consultations with Arvada Police and other resources. Business owners interested in participating in the program can fill out an interest form at the arvadachamber.org. Ralston Road Widening. Project delayed. Completion now slated for spring. By Riley Dunn. The Ralston Road Widening project, initially slated for completion in May 2023, is now projected to Wrap in spring 2024, according to a bond project update given by the city team at September 25th, Arvada City Council meeting. 
The delays in the project, which was initially funded by a 2018 bond measure, are owed to heavy rains, the discovery of unsuitable soft soil on the north side of the road near Central Park, and additional stormwater work on the south side of the road, according to infrastructure engineer Padmini Guripuri. The project seeks to widen Ralston Road lanes by two feet on each side and to widen median as well. The corridor carries around 23,000 cars per day, a total that's slated to increase in the coming years as the city's population increases. The city is working with Harmon, the contractor on the project, to try and get as much work done as possible by end of the year before the weather gets too cold for work to continue. We are looking to get as much done as we can by the end of this year, and we see that our contractor has moved a few things into the spring, Gudipuri said. Right now we are negotiating with our contractor to see how much of the work we can get done by the end of the year. Guripuri said that the city has received complaints from business owners along the Ralston Corridor regarding the continued side street closures and scheduling issues pertaining to the weather. Currently, side streets are closed from Balsam to Yarrow on the southeast side of the roadway. Crews discovered soft soil on the north side of the road near Central Park, which is not suitable to build on, causing additional delays as teams work to stabilize that part of the roadway. As of September 25th, about 84% of the project budget had been spent, or approximately $18.9 million of $22.5 million set aside for the project, Godipuri said, adding that securing right-of-way requirements and temporary construction easements for the project ended up costing 20% more than expected. An additional $7.23 million bond was debt was issued in June 2023 for use on the Ralston Road bond project and the 72nd Avenue bond project. Native American performers share their stories, cultures at Golden's Museum, Golden Museum's Autumn Fest by Corinne Westerman. For Raylene Whiteshield, there's something special about dancing in Golden. White Shield is of Cheyenne and Arapaho descent, people who call Golden home. So sharing her family's traditional dances on their ancestral lands is, quote, significant for me, she said. White Shield and her daughter, Josie Running Wolf, showcased the jingle dress dance October 1st at the Golden History Museum and Parks Autumn Fest, alongside other Native American artists. The museum's third annual Autumn Fest spanned the entire campus, offering families a chance to learn about various aspects of Colorado history, flora, fauna, minerals, and more. Activities ranged from learning wilderness survival skills to examining Civil War-era artifacts and replicas. Nathan Ritchie, museum director, said the goal was to offer a signature program for families and activate both the park and museum spaces. He thanked the museum's cultural partners who participated in the event. Among the festivities were hourly performances by Native American dancers, drummers, singers, and a flutist. Steve LaPointe, a dancer who also served as the group's MC, 
said most of the dancers made their own regalia, including cloth, beadwork, bustles, hairpieces, and headdresses. The Autumn Fest performances were, quote, our representation of a modern powwow. He continued, showcasing several styles of men's and women's dances and a friendship dance with attendees at the end. While many of the dancers and drummers also performed at last year's Autumn Fest, Denver-based flutist Calvin Standing Bear Jr. was new to the event. The second-generation flutist of Lakota and Navajo descent said his dad is a longtime flutist who's still active and has made some of his own flutes. After watching his dad for many years, Standing Bear started formally learning the instrument five years ago, adding that it's one of the oldest instruments in human history. In playing it, he said he recognized how it was, quote, crafted from a tree that sacrificed its life to make music. He played songs for attendees after the, performer, after the dancers and drummers finished performing and said he was, quote, honored to be part of this event and represent our people. To showcase who we are. As LaPointe told the crowd that had gathered to watch the performances, most of the dancers served on the museum's Native American Advisory Board, which was formed about a year ago. The board has eight members, whose backgrounds span about 15 tribal nations and peoples. LaPointe, who is Lakota descent, described how he and his fellow board members act as liaisons between the museum and Native American communities. They focus on inclusivity and giving their input on proposed and ongoing museum exhibits, programs, and collections. Among its current projects, the board is helping the museum plan a Native American arbor at the History Park. Richie said construction will begin soon and should be done by the end of this year. Additionally, the museum is planning a Native American exhibit for 2024, and an even larger one in 2026 for Colorado's 150th anniversary, he continued. Whiteshield, who's also on the board, said the museum's done a lot of engagement and acknowledgement with the board members and other Native American community members over the last year. On top of all other projects, she said hosting the performers at Autumn Fest was a good opportunity to, quote, showcase who we are, she said. Whiteshield and LaPointe both stressed how Native Americans aren't just, quote, past figures, as Whiteshield described, but people who lead regular lives like everyone else. We're a living, thriving piece of our modern community, LaPointe said. We're your neighbors who have a living presence here. Paralyzed Woman Summits Colorado's Highest Peak by Kit Geary. Summit Daily News. In a matter of minutes, Chris Shively Lane went from being a lifelong athlete with a long list of hikes to tackle to thinking she would never hike again. Lane was ecstatic when her 17-year-old son invited her on his birthday hike. It's not every day that a teenager invites his mom to hang out with him and his friends. Yet, that sunny day in October 2016 started off like a dream and ended like a nightmare. Seven steps into her hike, Lane lost her footing in Clear Creek Canyon. She fell 80 feet. On his birthday, her son had to assume the role of first responder. My son ran down to get me, 
He said that when he got down there, he checked my pulse and could not find one, and I was not breathing, Lane said. She eventually regained consciousness and realized she had raised her right arm during the fall, protecting her head from what would have been an extreme impact with a boulder. Lane looked around and realized that she had landed on the only pile of leaves in the area, cushioning her fall. I began to move my body and immediately realized I could not move my legs. It was at that moment I realized I was paralyzed, Lane said. From that day on, Lane would spend the rest of her life paralyzed from the chest down. Fast forward years later, Lane eventually found her way back to recreation. On September 10th, she summited the highest peak in Colorado, Mount Albert. With the assistance of 51 volunteers and a trail rider, a mobility device that uses a single wheel to help navigate narrow trails, Lane made it to the top of the 14,438-foot peak. Having been paralyzed for nearly seven years now, Shively said she would never have imagined that she could climb another 14er. I thought I'd never hike again, never mind summit the highest peak in Colorado, Lane said. There's no way I would have achieved this goal without the help of the Lockwood Foundation and these volunteers. Lane's path back to recreation began when she heard about the Lockwood Foundation through two of her best friends that had also summited Mount Albert with the organization. One had cerebral palsy and the other had Lou Gehrig's disease, a progressive neurodegenerative disease that affects nerve cells in the brain and spinal cord. The organization's goal was to get a person living with a different disability to summit Mount Albert each year. The Lockwood Foundation and Lane got in touch and set a goal to get a person in a wheelchair due to a spinal cord injury to summit the highest peak in Colorado. The team with the Lockwood Foundation set up camp at 11,700 feet to prepare for the summit bid. With a 5.45 a.m. start time, the team was back at by the afternoon. The adventure also included camping, an activity that Lane had not had the opportunity to do in nine years. It was my first 14er and my first time camping in nine years. And it was the day of the first snow, making things more magical, Lane said. I got to be on top of the world again, Lane added. Lane remains on a mission to shed lights on accessible recreation to prove people with mobility issues have opportunities to recreate. These days, she said her motto is, get up and get rolling. The Summit Daily News story via the Associated Press story share of which Colorado Community Media is a member. A Colorado Museum exhibit explores cowboy culture, the archetypal, and the Authentic by Parker Yamasaki, The Colorado Sun. In 2019, Emmanuel David, a gender and sexuality researcher at CU Boulder, and Yumi Roth, a sculptor professor, professor at CU Boulder, were searching the archives for a Filipino presence in Colorado. Nestled into an 1899 root book of Buffalo Bill's Wild West, the world-famous traveling show, David found the names of three Filipino rough riders, Isidora Alcantara, Felix Alcantara, and Geronimo Yoncintio. 
from this discovery, David and Roth developed a traveling art project called We Are Coming, a nod to Buffalo Bill's promotional poster from the time that declared I Am Coming, which displays the three names on vintage theater marquee in towns where the show historically stopped. When we think about Buffalo Bill's Wild West, we think about the personage of Buffalo Bill. The guy in the Stetson with the white hair and the lovely deerskin jacket, Roth said. What we're interested in doing is looking at what happens when you invert that relationship so that Buffalo Bill is not the central character anymore, Roth said. Part of it is like, what can you excavate from a partial archive that is designed around someone, David added. We can find the fragments of their lives and create something out of that. That is largely the goal of the Museum of Contemporary Art's upcoming ex exhibition, Cowboy, where We Are Coming will be displayed alongside the work of 25 other artists. Together, the works examine the cultural figure of the cowboy, including the negative space around him. Some artworks deconstruct the myth of the character, while others pay homage to the cowboy's enduring livelihood and culture. The exhibition opened September 29th. Even with cattle ranch lands across the West shrinking overall, Colorado still has about 2.6 million heads of cattle, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and the labor that comes with tending those cattle in the everyday reality for many in Colorado. How do we acknowledge both the fantasy and the seduction of the cowboy figure as depicted in popular culture in Hollywood? Nora Abrams, the show's co-curator, asked. And yet, also acknowledge that for many people this is a real, lived experience that is a daily part of life. It's real work, it's real labor, it's real livelihood. In other words, the curators wanted to lean into the myth while keeping their feet planted in the reality. But what even is that reality? I think our idea of a cowboy is largely influenced by books and tall tales from that time. And I know they weren't really interested in accuracy on any level. Artist R. Allen Brooks, who writes a comic for the Colorado Sun, said, Last year, Brooks created a comic book about black cowboy Nat Love for Denver Art Museum's Western Galleries. Brooks poured over Nat Love's biography to pull out the key moments to excerpt in the comic. There's a story in Nat Love's book where he lassos a train and his horse gets dragged into a ditch. Then he walks into a bar and shoots it up and forces the bartender to serve his horse a drink. Is that true? Brooks asked. I don't know. What's more interesting to me is finding the humanity beyond the figure. Nat Love was 11 when slavery ended, Brooks said, but throughout his life, both before and after slavery, he writes in his autobiography about the freedom he feels when he's riding his horse. The horse represented freedom for him throughout his whole life. To me, that was the human connection, Brooks said. For the MCA show, Brooks created a new comic book, this one about the historic town of Deerfield, the largest black homesteading settlement in Colorado. While Brooks addressed, addresses the historical record, other works add the contemporary one. Juan Fuentes, a Chicano artist based in San Francisco, will show a series of photographs of the immigrant community in Bennett, roughly 30 miles east of Denver which focuses on the workers whose lives are intertwined with their animals and the changing landscape. 
The show will also include New Orleans-based photographer Akasha Rabut's series Southern Riders, a collection of photos about urban rider clubs. Khalil Joseph, a filmmaker who has directed music videos for Beyonce and Kendrick Lamar, among others, will show a three-screen projection of his short film, Wildcat, and Janet, what co-curator Miranda Lash described as, quote, an evocative love letter to the rodeo history of Grayson, Oklahoma. There are some artworks in the show that fall along the lines of the deconstructive impulse, like, you think the cowboy is this, it's not that. Miranda Lash, the co-curator, said. But we also have a lot of works in the show that feel like love letters and homages. The show really toggles between the two impulses, you know, pulling apart, but also lifting up. In the 19th century, one-third of all cowboys were Mexican or black, an aspect that has not been fully recognized over the last 150 years, Abram said. It was important to the curators to honor that history. Of course, in doing that, it does unsettle the icon, Abram said. An icon inevitably is something that's pretty flat, that is larger than life, that is more idea-based rather than concrete, and that really is what the cowboy has become in many ways. Like Roth and David's piece, many of the artists took the opportunity to crack that definition of what a cowboy is. Nathan Young, a Native American artist who comes from a long line of cowboys, borrowed artifacts from his family to create his MCA installation, which pays homage to famous Pawnee bull riders and rodeo stars. Carl Hendel sketched deeply detailed drawings of female barrel racers that he encountered at a Denver rodeo. And Otis Kwame Kai Kwaiko, an artist who grew up in Ghana thinking that cowboy meant American creating a series of paintings full of black cowboys and ordinary black people in cowboy attire. The West, it's always been this thing in our culture, in our American psyche. Nikki Todd, founder of Visions West Contemporary Gallery, said, Todd was enamored by the images in traditional Western art, the plains, the buffalo, of course, the cowboy, but understood the limitations of those images. She started Visions West in Montana in 2000 to show Western art that wasn't stereotypically, quote, Western. The cowboy has just saturated the imagination of Americans for decades through film, books, even marketing, Todd said. I think everybody knows what a cowboy is. His image comes forth repeatedly in times of crisis and flux. Quote, Cold War America, the heyday of Western film, turn of the millennium. Wild Wild West, Justin Timberlake and Britney Spears and all their denim outfits. And Paris Hilton's The Simple Life, Lash said a bit jokingly. Now we've got Yellowstone. As we emerge from a global pandemic, we're questioning our relationship to the environment, to climate change, to global politics. I don't think it's a coincidence that we're into the idea of the figure that lives close to the land, that embodies freedom, a sense of liberation and movement. To me, it tracks, Lash said. Both Abrams and Todd speculated maybe the pandemic did give people a chance to leave their urban centers, to seek solitude and learn to live off the land. Quote, it's just something that has captured the imaginations of everyone, Todd said. There's something about freedom and just being tough and the rugged individual that we're all drawn to. 
no matter what culture we're from, you know, don't we all want to ride off into the sunset on our horses? This story is from the Colorado Sun, a journalist-owned news outlet based in Denver and covering the state. For more and to support the Colorado Sun, visit coloradosun.com. The Colorado Sun is a partner in the Colorado News Conservancy, owner of Colorado Community Media. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. Your regularly scheduled program is not available at this time. Please enjoy this special broadcast on AINC. Thank you for joining us for Denver Metro News. My name is Dave Dell. Today, I'll be reading articles from Denverite and Westward. From Denverite, I'll be reading, Councilmember Hines is looking to provide funding for community benefiting projects by Desiree Matherin. And here's what transportation advocates want to see from the mayor's budget by Rebecca Tauber. From Westward, I'll be reading, Westward poll gets similar but angrier responses than CPI on where Denver is headed by Katie Cheshire. And Mayor Johnston announces thousands in event grants to revitalize downtown Denver, also by Katie Cheshire. Now finish up the hour with other articles from Westward. These first two articles are from Denverite. Councilmember Hines is looking to provide funding for community benefiting projects by Desiree Matherin. Are you part of a registered neighborhood organization or community group based in Central Denver's District 10? Well, Councilmember Chris Hines may have some funding available to help throw that block party, fix that newsletter, paint a crosswalk, or clean up some trash. Hines is implementing a community benefit fund in the district that will provide financial support to community-based groups. Through the program, which comes out of District 10's budget, groups can apply for up to $2,500 that will go toward community benefiting projects such as neighborhood beautification and safety concerns, increasing civic engagement, or cultivating community building. The program is similar to Councilmember Paul Cashman's District 6 Community Benefit Fund, which he started last year. A major difference is that Cashman's program is focused on RNOs. We specifically didn't say RNOs on purpose because while registered neighborhood organizations are in ordinance, that isn't the only way we get outreach from the community, Hines said. Homeowners associations will reach out. Some people take it upon themselves to circulate petitions, as an example. Hines said the program is something he's wanted to implement for quite some time, but for budgetary reasons was unable to. Now, with the resources available and with the success shown in Cashman's district, Hines is ready to start doling out the cash reasonably. He added that the goal of the program is to essentially provide gap funding to these groups. We wanted to expand our thought process of what a community benefit would be, Hines said. Some groups have already reached out to Heinz. For example, the Golden Triangle Creative District would like funding for litter abatement and graffiti removal. Teller Elementary School also reached out and is looking for funding to paint crosswalks around the school with paw prints to show school pride, but also to increase safety. Heinz said the money can go toward important projects like these, especially if it's something the community has been asking for for quite some time but the money can also go towards newsletter fixes and increasing engagement for meetings. Hines said that in the future, he'd like to continue to provide support to community groups 
mainly because they are an essential part of the city's connectivity. Some examples include Creative Collective MailChimp or Zoom accounts, providing stipends for volunteers, making sure that groups have a place to meet, and providing food and childcare during meetings. These simple things could be big barriers for some organizations and participants. Funds are limited. To qualify, groups must have a W-9 and demonstrate community support. Hines said the application process is straightforward and simple so as not to include any additional barriers to groups. It's due by November 15th and the funding may be issued by December. Here's what transportation advocates want to see from the mayor's budget by Rebecca Tauber. When the Denver's Department of Transportation and Infrastructure, DOTI, presented its portion of the proposed 2024 budget to City Council, many council members made one thing clear. The city is not doing enough to prevent death on Denver's streets. Council members ask for more money for things like the Safe Routes to School program and speed tables and asked why DOTI has denied requests for specific district items like traffic lights and crosswalks. A letter sent to Mayor Mike Johnston this week asked for $550,000 additional dollars to combat traffic deaths, $5 million for safe routes to school, and $3 million for speed tables citywide. DOTI's advisory board, made up of 19 people appointed by the mayor and city council, echoed calls for more transit funding. In a letter sent to Johnston Tuesday, the board asked for more money to commit the city to Denver Moves Everyone, the latest in a number of city plans imagining future transportation networks for the city. The letter also asks the mayor's office to redirect funds for the Spear Tunnel System, predominantly for cars, toward efforts to improve school transit safety and bike lanes. Board member Alan Cowgill said his two priorities include reducing speed limits and automated enforcement through things like red light cameras. I do think there is some wiggle room within the DOTI budget today to move some things around to better prioritize Vision Zero and multimodal goals, he said. We're looking at record years of traffic deaths, and those are really tragic. The only appropriate number of people dying on our streets is zero. Advocates also want the administration to make a stronger commitment to Vision Zero, a program Denver launched in 2016 with the goal of bringing traffic deaths down to zero by 2030. Since that commitment, city traffic deaths hit a two-decade high of more than 80 fatal crashes in 2021 and 2022. We are concerned that this plan is significantly underfunded based on the budget for this year, the board wrote in its letter. Advocates suggested reallocating increased money for paving towards Vision Zero efforts and adding $50,000 for signage reducing the speed limit on major streets with high levels of injuries. We need to find a better way to fund it because right now we are not meeting those Vision Zero goals, not even getting close to them right now, Calgill said. I do think it needs to be a priority. Board members also want the city to spend $1 million on 10 red light cameras around the city. Recently, the state expanded the use of speed cameras, and Aurora began its own pilot program in August. Proponents of speed cameras say they promote traffic safety while decreasing police interactions and racial profiling, but some studies show camera technology can have its own racial biases. 
With the delay of Denver's sidewalk repair program, the DOTI Advisory Board also wants an additional $1 million for sidewalk repairs. In 2022, voters approved an ambitious plan to levy fees on property owners to fix sidewalks citywide. But the rollout of that program has been delayed six months to the summer of 2024 over, over concerns about inequitable fees. Yet, with new fees on the horizon, it's possible property owners will delay paying for their own sidewalk repairs in the short term. The letter from advocates asks the city to put up $1 million for repairs in the meantime. Other suggestions include levying fees on construction that disrupts public infrastructure like crosswalks and using that money to restore pedestrian infrastructure. The advisory board also wants the city to focus on enforcing parking violations that block bike lanes and sidewalks and put $20,000 into a pilot snow removal program on neighborhood bikeways. The letter also praises some parts of the proposed 2024 budget, like money for the Colfax Bus Rapid Transit Line and the expansion of the Microtransit Connector Program to West Denver. It's still unclear how many requests from City Council members, DOTI, or other staff will make it into Johnston's budget. The mayor has until Monday to respond to requests and release his final budget. Then, council members can propose and vote on amendments, while the public can give comment on October 23rd. City Council must pass a final budget by November 13th. The following articles are from Westward. Westward poll gets similar but angrier responses than CPI on where Denver is headed, by Katie Cheshire. Back in September, Westward announced we were taking a poll of our readers to compare with results from the newly formed Colorado Polling Institute, which released its first survey of Denver's likely 2024 election voters in August. Well, the results are in. CPI respondents depicted a city divided over whether it's headed in the right direction, while also identifying homelessness and housing affordability as top issues for voters. Westward's results largely matched up with their sentiment, though our readers say homelessness, crime, and public safety are the city's top issues, while housing affordability comes in next. Westward's readers also seem to be more dissatisfied than those surveyed by the CPI, giving lower approval ratings to every entity identified in the survey. Additionally, when compared to the CPI's finding that 44% of people think Denver is currently on the right track, while another 44% think it's heading in the wrong direction, Westward's readers are less optimistic. Of the more than 300 people reached, 38% said the Miles High City is currently on the right track, and 56.1% said it's headed the wrong way. We're pleased our Denver poll continues to draw attention to many of the issues facing Colorado's capital city, and we hope to provide a similar spark with our first statewide poll later this year, says Chris Hubbard, senior advisor with the CPI, of Westward's survey. The CPI reached just over 400 people with its inaugural poll, which Brent Buchanan, a pollster with Signal, one of the two organizations to oversee the questionnaire, said is a solid number during a media briefing on September 8th. 400 is a really good sample for the size of the city, he noted. If you do a statewide survey, a 600 sample size is accurate. 
Our method wasn't as scientific as the one used by CPI, which was founded earlier this year by social entrepreneur and investor David Carlson with the goal of providing accurate and publicly accessible information about issues in the state. Westward just made a Google form using the CPI questions and didn't collect any demographic information, since Google Forms just isn't secure enough for that. This means people could have sneakily completed the form multiple times and we'd be none the wiser. Still, Westward hopes the results offer another look at where Denver's residents stand in a time of transition. It's an interesting time for Denver, Kevin Ingham, a pollster with Aspect Strategic, the other polling entity used by the CPI, told Westward in September. The city's still recovering from pandemic-induced challenges. Denver has its first new mayor in 12 years. Half the city council members are new. The CPI asked voters for their opinions on the city council, the Denver Police Department, the Regional Transportation District, and Denver International Airport. All achieved positive, positive favorability. In Westward's poll, however, only DIA came out in the positive. City Council, meanwhile, is considered unfavorable by 52.6% of those surveyed, while the DPD is considered unfavorable by 51.6%. RTD got the worst results, with 55.8% of respondents rating it unfavorably. Despite seemingly endless complaints about DIA, 59% of westward respondents rated it favorably. In the CPI poll, 71.1% did so, showing that our respondents were consistently more unhappy, even on the items they're happy with. When it comes to DIA, we're asking people just, how do you feel about your airport? Ingham offered on DIA's high ranking in September, it's not specific things about how it operates or how people feel about the Grand Hall construction or anything like that. As far as Denver Mayor Mike Johnston is concerned, respondents tracked with the CPI survey, with 39.7% ranking him favorably, 24.2% with no opinion, and 32.5% describing him as unfavorable. In the CPI poll, 46% ranked him favorably, 28.3% had no opinion, and 22.2% ranked him unfavorably. Johnston's homelessness plan had many respondents feeling like they didn't know enough to give an opinion in August, when the CPI conducted its survey and the plan was newer. Of those who replied to Westward, only 14.5% said they didn't know enough to approve or dis disapprove. Instead, 44.2% approve and 38.4% disapprove. Westward's readers are even more gung-ho on encampment sweeps than the CPI respondents. The CPI survey found 65% of people in support. Westward recorded 73.9%. One of the closest results came on the financial strain that Denver's current housing situation causes, with 64.2% of Westward's respondents saying it has some or significant strain on their budgets, and 65% telling CPI the same. One of Johnston's other priorities since taking office has been revitalizing downtown Denver, as seen with the recent announcement of grants designed to bring events to the area. What we know is that downtown Denver is the economic hub of the city of Denver, Johnston said at an October 10th press conference. We know as downtown Denver succeeds in its economic and social recovery, 
So goes the rest of the city and the rest of the region. And so we're very committed to make sure, making sure downtown Denver is a place that feels vibrant and safe and welcoming to residents, to workers, to visitors all the time. Both the CPI and Westward found in each of the polls that people aren't optimistic about the recovery of the city center, though they report that a majority of people feel safe in the Mile High City. Another result that falls in line with, CP, with the CPI survey is the feeling about reducing the time city officials can spend in office from three consecutive terms to two. In Westward's survey, 64.8% of people support that idea, and 63% of the CPI respondents do, too. Westward readers are slightly more jazzed about the concept of ranked choice voting, with 53.6% saying they support the system, compared to the CPI's 48% finding. While many of the results between the two surveys had a similar outcome, the CPI encourages people to pay attention to those with slightly more stringent methods than westwards, when possible. A scientific approach to polling is the best way to gather information that is reflective of the diversity, be it racial and ethnic, socioeconomic or geographic, of voters in Denver and Colorado, and we hope people continue to find value in our work, Hubbard concludes. Mayor Johnston announces thousands in event grants to revitalize downtown Denver by Katie Cheshire. On Monday, October 9th, Mayor Mike Johnston announced the first program devoted to his administration's goal of revitalizing downtown Denver, a grant initiative to help subsidize community events in the city center. Johnston and Downtown Denver Partnership CEO Courtney Garrett lifted the curtain on the city's new Dynamic Downtown Denver Grant Program at a press conference, revealing that it will dole out more than $350,000. This can include everything from a local community organization that wants to come and do Shakespeare in a parking lot in downtown Denver, Johnson said. This can include the Montbello Drumline coming down to visit for an afternoon. Johnston even floated a pickleball tournament as an option, among other creative ideas. When you think about some of your favorite memories in downtown Denver, they're often going to be around some wonderful event that you attended, Johnston explained. What we were looking at was not to say, let's have a top-down city-run program, but to say, let's actually cultivate the creativity, the innovation, the invention, the artistry that already exists in the community. Grants will range from $500 to $25,000. According to Johnston and Garrett, Downtown Denver is at a critical time as it continues to recover from the pandemic. 13 new businesses and 1,300 new residents have been added to the core city so far this year, they said. We are incredibly optimistic, Garrett said. Recovery takes strong vision and leadership, and we see that leadership here in Denver as our community, our businesses, and our partners at the city come together. We know that there's no better way to bring our community together to re-energize downtown and reinstall a collective love for downtown than through music, through arts, culture, and celebration. Garrett offered some examples of events that could work, including a single musician or artist putting on a show or community installation or restaurants coming together to host music series on their patios. I could envision resident groups like registered neighborhood organizations, for example, doing pop-up markets, she said. 
noting that the goal is simply to provide cool experiences for the community. One Denver, the organization dedicated to reviving Denver's nighttime economy, plans to apply for a few grants, including one for a New Year's Eve celebration that's open to families instead of just partiers, according to the group's executive director, Stephen Brackett. Applicants don't have to propose new concepts. I think it could definitely be open to existing events, Garrett told Westward. Let's say there's something taking place outside of the city center, but they want to do an activation that helps promote their event in downtown. As the partnership reviews grant applications, it will prioritize events in areas where foot traffic still hasn't fully rebounded since the 2020 pandemic and shutdowns. Otherwise, there aren't too many restrictions. Garrett and Johnston stressed that the process is very open-ended, with all types of events potentially qualifying as long as they work toward showcasing downtown Denver. Events and activations should be innovative and inclusive and should take place in highly visible, publicly accessible areas in downtown, outdoors, and provide the public with free, unique, and engaging experiences, Garrett said at the press conference, noting that the focus is on fun. We know that sometimes government programs can feel complicated and slow-moving and hard to navigate, Johnson acknowledged. What we want is the opposite. We want something that is easy to access for creators, innovators, artists all around the city who have their own passion. With the city involved, certain processes, such as permitting, should be easier. Denver's Department of Transportation and Infrastructure, which oversees permitting, is a partner in the program, as is Denver Arts and Venues. Successful applicants will also benefit from expertise from her organization, noted Garrett. The Downtown Denver Partnership is very big on programming and activation, she said. We'll certainly have those resources available to help mentor community groups, individuals, whomever, to help understand exactly how you make these things work. Applications will open on October 16th, at thisismydenver.com slash grants. The partnership will review applications on a rolling basis, with plans for a weeks-long turnover from application to acceptance for those who qualify. What we know is that downtown Denver is the economic hub of the city of Denver, Johnston said. It's also the economic hub of the region. We know as downtown Denver succeeds in its economic and social recovery, so goes the rest of the city and the rest of the region. And so we're very committed to making sure downtown Denver is a place that feels vibrant and safe and welcoming to residents, to workers, to visitors all the time. This is just the first of many strategies to further that vision, the mayor promised. We'll look at other ways to make it easier for businesses that are currently downtown to be able to activate their public spaces and sidewalks, he said. We'll look at ways that we can help small businesses start up to be able to get access to a city that might have thought they would never have been able to access before. This is not the end, but the beginning of what we see as a comprehensive, complete approach. Triangle Bar patrons scoff at encampment claims as business booms during weekend parties by Benito El Kelty. It's been a tough year for downtown Denver businesses like Woods Boss Brewing Company and the Triangle Bar, which are located about a block away from each other. Both have owners who claim that revenues have tanked because of nearby homeless encampments. 
but it certainly didn't look that way over the weekend. Woods Boss, a brewery and bar at 2210 California Street, held its annual block party on Saturday, October 7th, and people flocked to the Triangle at 2036 Broadway on Sunday, October 8th, for its farewell beer bust after the owners decided to close indefinitely last week. Both events went off without a hitch, which warrants the question, are the homeless encampments really the issue? Patrons who spoke to Westward on Sunday scoffed at that notion, saying it's a bullshit excuse. It's kind of a cop-out, said Triangle frequenter Paul Anderson. Yeah, homelessness is an issue, but it's a cop-out. Phil Thomas, another longtime patron, said, We didn't come that often, but that was never a deciding factor. It was an issue to come and deal with here. It's not like they don't exist, but we go to places on Colfax all the time, and it never bothers us there either. Anderson told Westward he used to go to the original Triangle Bar that opened in the 1970s, and although he liked the new version that opened in 2017, it just didn't have the same vibe. But Denver's homelessness crisis has nothing to do with it, he insisted. The party disappeared, Anderson asserted. There's not a lot of reason to come down here anymore. According to patrons and even some of the owners themselves, the reason downtown businesses like the Triangle Bar are declining and having to close up shop also has a lot to do with the city's after-work and nightlife scene diminishing after the COVID-19 pandemic. I don't want you to take away from this conversation that the homeless encampments are ruining the area. That's not the case entirely, said Woods' boss co-owner Chad Moore during the Saturday block party. That is a significant impact to this area and what people's going ongoing perceptions are. There's also the impacts of people not coming back to their workplace downtown. In Moore's eyes, Denver is suffering significantly from the homelessness situation. However, he admits that his business is not doing well to begin with and that the encampments just make things worse. Restaurants, bars, and retail, their problems are huge because there's a contingent of folks who aren't coming downtown to come to work, he said. When there are homeless encampments within a block radius of this building, our numbers drop overnight. It would have been hard for first-timers to know that business was suffering this past weekend as hundreds of people packed the triangle for its goodbye bash and the area outside Woods Boss for the block party. Triangle co-owner Scott Coors had announced on October 5th that he was closing the iconic LGBTQ plus venue immediately and indefinitely after a survey of customers found that homeless encampments were causing residents to stay away. The results came in while a triangle was also suffering from low revenues. After closing in the late 2000s, several owners resurrected the Triangle Bar in 2017 and had success in the first few years. But since COVID, the bar hasn't been able to recover, and revenues have trended downward much faster this year as, home, as more homeless encampments have sprung up around the block, Coors says. In response to critics who believe he's using the homeless crisis as a scapegoat, Coors says that he stands behind the survey his management team conducted and insists that nearby encampments are to blame, saying safety is the bar's top concern. The encampments are completely out of control, Coors says. Our customers told us one of the main reasons why they aren't coming anymore is concerns over walking through the encampments. While it would have been hard to notice a decline in business on Sunday, 
Coors also points to the fact that a city sweep did just take place in the area two weeks earlier. Both the Triangle and the Woods Boss events went on for several hours. At any given moment during the Woods Boss party, about 150 people could be seen inside the gates dancing to live rock, perusing merchandise under tents, buying tacos from a food truck.